1954, the Supreme Court held in Brown versus Board of Education that segregation by race in public schools was unconstitutional. In subsequent years, the course of school integration in the South followed a slow and varied path. Very slow and very varied indeed. The unfolding of that experience in the schools in Western Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, what am I thinking? In Western Virginia uh, is the special focus of research by our speaker, Theodore Delaney. It's a special pleasure and honor for the VHS that Dr. Delaney can be here today to speak to us. He's a much respected expert on an, as an aspect of uh, one of the most dramatic changes in Southern life that began more than half a century ago. Dr. Delaney is Associate Professor of History and Director of the African American Studies Program at Washington and Lee University. In fact, his long and distinctive career at Washington and Lee was the subject of a feature article in the Washington Post in 2005. He earned his undergraduate degree at Washington and Lee, and then he earned his PhD in American History from the College of William and Mary. His scholarly writing has appeared in the Oxford Dictionary of American Biography and the Dictionary of Virginia Biography. He's the author of Surviving Defeat, The Trials of Mrs. Ex-President Tyler, a chapter in the book Virginia's Civil War. Dr. Delaney is a newly elected member of the Board of Trustees of the Woodrow Wilson Public Presidential Library. As I mentioned, his current research and writing focus on school desegregation in Western Virginia. He's made special use of oral history in that project, which was uh, made possible under the auspices of the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities and Washington Lee University. And it's a special treat to have him speak here because this is the first time he's spoken on this very important research in Richmond. So please welcome Ted Delaney, who will speak on the topic, Telling Our Stories, School Desegregation in Western Virginia. Thank you very much. I also have reinforcement here because one of the people who did conducted interviews for me is at this lecture. Her name is Sarah Wilson. And so when we come to Q&A, I hope Sarah will help me out. This is a community study, and we studied four counties, four counties that are connected, Rockbridge County, Roanoke County, Botetourt County, and Augusta County. And so these counties are just along 81. The project originally was going to be much larger, but a sensible grants writer told me that it wasn't possible for me to do a larger area, and she was right. Uh, these interviews took a great deal of time, and all of these interviews were conducted by students, students who were mostly undergraduates, but there were two graduate students who worked for me, and Sarah Wilson was one of those graduate students who was working on a degree at James Madison University. We interviewed both white and black subjects, so most of the people that we interviewed were white, um, and that certainly makes a lot of sense since the population uh, or since the demography of Western Virginia is overwhelmingly white in the first place. But this is a picture of one of my students interviewing, and here's a picture of another one who's doing an interview. Uh, 
This student, by the way, is going to graduate school in history next year. This student is going to Stanford Law School next year. So the students uh, were just really wonderful with these interviews, and I have great appreciation for them. In 1956, Virginia Senator Harry Flood Byrd advised white Southerners in general and white Virginians in particular to defy the Supreme Court's ruling in Brown versus the Board of Education. Byrd's plan called for massive resistance, that is, the outright refusal to operate public schools if required to desegregate. His advice was bold and radical. And it resulted in a few school closings, most notably in Prince Edward County, where schools closed for four years. Most cities and counties in Virginia did not close their schools, but their resistance to desegregation was also defiant and radical. Many local jurisdictions simply postponed desegregation as long as possible, and they seemed to hope that it would never occur. Most local officials in Western Virginia hoped to permanently delay segregation. They seemed to find hope in the timidity of the court's ruling and the lack of enforcement by the U.S. Department of Justice. Resistance to school desegregation contrasted sharply with the area's reputation for congenial race relations. White and black people knew each other well, and they were polite to each other in the more rural areas of these counties where black and white popul- where, I'm sorry where black populations were relatively small but these areas were neither progressive nor liberal white and colored signs reminded black residents to keep in their place in this society of strict racial separation residential segregation was not always sharply defined. In small towns like Lexington, a black street was often perpendicular to a white one, and sometimes the white street was the home to upper-middle-class residents. Black and white children played together after school, and white high school boys played tag football with black high school boys whenever they got the opportunity. Rockbridge County was one of these areas of congenial race relations where uh, Southern-style segregation seemed to exist alongside the congeniality. According to the 1960 census, Rockbridge County had a population of 16,502 people, and blacks represented only 7% of the population. Additionally, the population was scattered in small settlements in several areas of the county, and this included Lexington. Lexington, the county seat, was the home of Senator uh, Absalom Willis Robertson, the local colleague of Senator Harry Byrd, and a supporter of massive resistance. Robertson was also a symbol of the community's conservative politics. Yet the college faculties at Virginia Military Institute and Washington and Lee University included a growing number of professors who were moderate or liberal in their political views. Schools would not desegregate, however, in any jurisdiction of the study prior to 1965. 
11 years after the Brown decision. As officials of the study area resisted desegregation, local chapters of the NAACP diligently worked to achieve total desegregation as quickly as possible. The Stanton School Board, for instance, considered a letter from the Stanton branch of the NAACP at its May 11, 1964 meeting, which had most likely been drafted by an attorney. It demanded that you promptly end racial segregation in the public schools, and it warned that the following court cases, and I have them on the screen, the following court cases required compliance. And you see the names of these court cases. 111 black citizens added their signatures to the letter, but other blacks were less enthusiastic about desegregation, or at least in retrospect they were. L.V., a student at Stanton's Booker T. High School, did not want to leave his all-black high school in 1965 during the Freedom of Choice plan. Marilyn A. of Lexington noted how much more supportive she found black teachers as compared to white ones. Iska M.K.'s only memorable teachers were the three black elementary school teachers that she had experienced before desegregation. She says that she could never make any sense of desegregation. Quote, I felt, and this is a personal thing, that I left my school to go to the school they told me I had to go to, and I don't really think I ever got over that. And the reason being, even being 12 or 13 years old, I couldn't make sense of it. I live right here next to the black school, right here, and I had to walk a mile and a half to two miles to reach Lexington High School. What sense did that make? In a public forum which initiated this project, Wanda Fitz Early of Glasgow waxed eloquently about the merits of her education at the all-black Lilburn Downing School in Lexington. It was the only high school which Rockbridge County blacks could attend prior to 1965. She reminisced about the long daily bus ride whose circuitous route collecting children far exceeded the mere 20 miles between her home and the school. Some white members of the audience observed that it was the very first time they had heard black nostalgia about segregation. The city of Stanton was not the only governmental jurisdiction to receive a threat from Stanton's NAACP. They sent the same letter to the members of the Augusta County School Board, and in both cases issued a clear threat. We call your attention to the fact that in Bell versus the County School Board of Powhatan County, the unyielding refusal of the County School Board to take any initiative with regard to its duty to desegregate schools resulted in the boards being required to pay the cost of litigation including compensation to the attorneys for the Negro school children and their parents. Stanton NAACP President John O'Harden and his fellow officers had no intention of compromising if the school board did not comply. They challenged Augusta County and Federal District Court in a case called Terry Kaya et al. versus 
the County School Board of Augusta County. Judge Thomas Smitchy ordered Augusta County to desegregate on the 17th of February, 1966. No parent was happier about desegregation than Stanton's Rita Wilson. Truly a self-made woman, Wilson began her adult life as a maid and later earned a college education. She is now a member of Stanton City Council. At the earliest, edu- er, I'm sorry, at the earliest opportunity, Wilson took advantage of the pupil placement plan. She transferred her children from all-black T.C. Edmonds to the better-equipped Bessie Weller School. She wanted only the very best education for her children and the best facilities possible. According to Wilson, and I quote, T.C. Edmonds was very dilapidated. It was a black school, as we call them, and the water fountain was outdoors. There were no cafeterias in any of the black schools in the city. And the bathroom, there was a pull chain, and the little kids couldn't reach it. So the teachers would, when they would remember, ever once in a while, flush the toilets. And I said, no, we are talking about 30 or 40 years ago. Bessie Weller was right over here. My next-door neighbors were white, and there were a couple of white families on the street. So I talked to my husband, and he wasn't too much in favor because he said I was going to mess the kids up. I just went over to Bessie Weller to register my children. End of quote. Most black schools in the area were far less elaborate than the white schools, but Wilson's description of T.C. Edmonds seems to have been poor in comparison to other black schools in the area. The obvious disparity between the physical plants and black and white schools keenly illustrated the problem of separate but unequal across the South. No black schools in the study area had to teach students in tar paper shacks like the ones at Moton High School in Prince Edward County, but the disparities were great. Separate but unequal must have worried Rockbridge County school officials because they built a new gymnasium with a regulation basketball court at Lexington's all-black Lilburn Downing High School just a few years after the Brown decision. This is the oldest building at Lilburn Downing. It was built in 1927. And over a period of years, the physical plant at the school became larger. Uh, The middle section was added in the 1940s, but this new gym was opened in 1958. And so... Uh, there, four years after the Brown decision, uh, Lilburn Downing suddenly had a new gym uh, that students were using in the late 50s. In spite of its fancy new gym, other facilities at Lilburn Downing were not up to par. During the late 1950s, students aptly nicknamed the science laboratory as the Dungeon. The poorly lit and ill-equipped basement room was located in the oldest of the school's three buildings and uh, really deserved to be called the dungeon. Waynesboro's all-black Rosenwald School did not have a science laboratory at all, but needed one in order to become accredited. Principal William Perry had assurances for a new building by 1957. He noted 
Quote, in 1960, we started on a new building, believe it or not. In 1961, that building was completed, end of quote. Investment in all-black school buildings six years after Brown v. Board suggests that school boards had visions of operating these schools on an integrated basis if forced to desegregate. Most black teachers and students, however, did not comment on significant disparities between the buildings of the black and white schools at the time of desegregation. Shirley Franklin, a black school teacher in Roanoke, did not remember much of a difference between the facilities at all black Lincoln Terrace School and her new assignment at the integrated Raleigh Court School. Nor did she recall significant differences between the quality and the quantity of school equipment. She did, however, note a marked difference in the curriculum. The school board in Buena Vista, Virginia, and that's the way the natives pronounce it. And since I'm a native of Rockbridge County, I'm pronouncing it that way as well. The students, the school board in Buena Vista, Virginia, began to make plans for desegregation earlier than any other jurisdiction in the study area. It began to put a plan in place as early as 1960, although school board members noted that desegregation was not in the best interest of the children of either race. In spite of their reservations, school officials understood change was coming and that they could not halt that change. Desegregation represented less of a threat to whites in Buena Vista than in other small cities in the study area. The black settlement in Buena Vista was extremely small, as the population statistics indicate. And the only school that Buena Vista operated for black students was grades one through six that had fewer than 50 students. Park Avenue Elementary School in Buena Vista, uh, the school board noted, would desegregate if the enrollment ever dropped to 32. Well, the enrollment did drop to 32, but it dropped to 32 coincidentally with Rockbridge County's decision to desegregate all of its schools. Buena Vista was an independent city, and they bused their high school students to Lexington. There were only 12 black students in Lilburn Downing High School at the time of desegregation. And what we tended to find is when you blend 12 students into a majority white high school that many of the white respondents didn't remember desegregation at all. All of the black students remembered. It was culture shock for them. But the whites usually didn't have any real recollection of desegregation when the numbers were this small. By 1965, the other Rockbridge County schools had fully integrated and desegregation of students went smoothly. The largest black school in the county of Rockbridge was Lilburn Downing, which had an enrollment of about 425 students in in grades 1 through 12. Its high school students came from every black settlement in the county, but grades 1 through 7 were mostly Lexington students. The town of Glasgow and the city of Buena Vista operated their own elementary schools and desegregation consolidated schools by sending students to integrated schools within their own school districts. 
The result was that the formerly all-white schools sometimes had classes in which there were only one or two blacks in uh, any of the classes, if at all. And you can see the population statistics on this chart and see how significantly blacks were in a minority in these locales. Jill Straub, a white student, could not remember desegregation at Natural Bridge High School, but every one of the black students at Natural Bridge High School had a vivid memory of desegregation. Jill didn't have any black students in her class the first year of desegregation. Black students went from an environment where they were surrounded by people who looked like them to environments where everyone in the room except them may be white. The white students from all four counties who vividly remembered desegregation remembered, first of all, the football team. They remembered, and this is stereotypic, they remembered the black football players who won games for us. None seemed to remember black boys who were poor athletes or white boys who were good athletes. H. Howard said that integration made sense because we always played football with the black kids after school. Unusual athletic talent on the part of a few black students did funnel these stereotypes. Lexington Steve Davis was a high school football coach's dream come true. He was one of the rare athletes from that small town that went into the big leagues. He went straight from Lexington High School to the Pittsburgh Steelers, and he played in two Super Bowls. So that kind of thing helps to skew people's memory of black athletes. Robert B. of Glasgow remembered that all of the whites in town became friendly after we started winning their football games. Coach Alfonso Hamilton of Stanton's Booker T. Washington High School had one of the best basketball teams in the area. Perhaps his secret was that if you only have one sport, you can really perfect it. Uh, Booker T. had neither a baseball nor a football team. Roanoke's Prunella Chubb Wilson's son developed such a good friendship with a white teammate that she could hardly believe the white family invited him to sit at their table and eat. Yet for all of the fond memories of black athletes, trouble lurked among the cheerleaders. Unfortunately, cheering squads were teenage female cliques that did not, as a rule, have faculty advisors. The evidence suggests that cheering squads discriminated both across class and racial lines. Angry black students tried to force an integrated cheering squad at Lexington High School by having a sit-in in Principal Frank Thompson's office. Lexington's Doug Chase remembers working with a black classmate to find a solution to the impasse. Roberta B. remembered the tension at Natural Bridge High School for the same reason. The principal of Robert E. Lee High School in Stanton refused to intervene in the cheerleader uh, problem at his school. And so cheerleaders were the biggest point of contention between white and black students all over the state. According to Hank Allen and Jim Dash, two retired university professors at the University of Virginia's Department of Education who helped to prepare local school boards for desegregation. 
The problem of desegregating faculty members was more of a problem in Lexington and Rockbridge County than in other places. Most of Lilburn Downing faculty rushed to find new jobs in other places when they heard that integration was coming because they feared losing their jobs, and those fears were well-founded. Oftentimes, the black teachers throughout the South were eliminated when the schools consolidated with desegregation. All of the teachers had either, all of the black teachers had either bachelor's degrees or master's degrees, even though Virginia's certification at the time permitted people to teach off of two years of college. Lexington's George Warren secured an attorney in Richmond when Rockbridge County Superintendent Floyd S. K. told him that he did not have a job for him. Lewis Jones had a verbal altercation with Kay when he told Jones that he only had half-time work for him. Concerned about his financial obligations, Jones inquired what he would do with the rest of his time. Kay advised him to find employment at VMI at W&L like all of the other colored people in Lexington. Coach Alfonso Hamilton did not recall any problems with teacher placement in Stanton, and neither did Principal William Perry of Rosenwald High School in Waynesboro. Black Roanoke teacher Shirley uh, Franklin believes that all of the black teachers in the Roanoke area were placed in white schools. But a lot of black teachers and administrators uh, found that the change was not easy. Longstanding coach Alfonso Hamilton did not become the basketball coach at Robert E. Lee High School in Stanton, although he had a winning team at Booker T. Instead, he became the assistant principal. Principal William Perry became an assistant principal. Men in such posts usually became the school disciplinarians. Not an easy way to win the confidence of many students and their parents. A white parent startled Roanoke teacher GC by sending her a set of math problems to work. GC taught third grade. The problems were at seventh grade level. She worked to answer the problems and return them with a note saying that she would be happy to learn, uh, she would be happy to help the father learn how to do math at the seventh grade level if he wanted. Roberta L. remembers feeling particularly uneasy at Natural Bridge High School when her son, a football player, decided to be a part of a protest to get black cheerleaders. White teachers also experienced challenges. Marquita D. remembers an incident in home economics class where three black girls uh, were cutting out a pattern for hot pants. The disgruntled teacher hinted her disapproval and overheard one of the girls say, you're just jealous because you can't get your fat bottom in these hot pants. <laughs> the teacher lost her temper, and her response contained the word nigger. One Lexington High School band uh, member reported how angry the band director was when the black members refused to play Dixie at the football game after school desegregation. Even though these Band members had clearly stated their position in rehearsals prior to the game. The teacher called for Dixie anyhow, and the black members took their seats and did not participate. Unfortunately for me, the weakness of this project has been that 
there's one group that's missing, and we've got tons of interviews, and I'm only giving you a small slice of this project. But the group that's missing are the massive resistance people. Uh, there was one woman who sent me an email, volunteered to tell the other side of the story, and Sarah Wilson, my friend in the audience, uh, was going to go interview this woman, and every time the date approached, the woman would back down or change the date or cancel. Finally, she said she would only do a telephone interview. Well, telephone interviews are not very effective because you can't watch a person's eyes, and you can't really tell when a person is really putting, pulling your leg or telling you something that's not truthful. We decided that we would not do the telephone interview. There was another man who called me at my office. One of those times you really wish you had caller ID, although I suspect he was pretty careful that caller ID wouldn't have come through. Insistent that he could tell me the other side of the story, but he was unwilling to give me a name at all. And I told him that I could promise anonymity, that I didn't really care what his views were. I just wanted my project to be complete. And he absolutely refused. Um, he was not willing to let me know who he was, and I said, like a reporter, I have to know my sources. Um, and if you're going to be a responsible scholar, you really have to know who you're talking to, because if there's somebody who's totally anonymous and you don't know who this person is, then there is no way to really um, verify that the person was even from the study area. Catherine Gillum of Lexington vividly remembers her last day of the third grade in all-white Ann Smith School of Lexington. When the teacher bade them, bade them farewell and noted that the following year would be very different. Quote, I don't want to teach those children any more than you want to go to school with them, she added. One white Roanoke teacher expressed her disapproval of desegregation but did not elaborate. Virginia governmental officials like Senator Harry Byrd, Governors Lindsey Allman and Mills Godwin, had, not, had they not supported massive resistance, things might have been different in Virginia, particularly since Virginia is a state of the Upper South and was not likely to become like an Alabama or a Mississippi during this experience. But like all politicians, they understood, that their, they understood their political base, and obviously that political base supported the position they were taking. Governor Linwood Holton was the obvious exception, when in 1970, when Roanoke and Richmond, Lynchburg and Norfolk were ordered to desegregate by court order, Linwood Holton voluntarily enrolled his children in black majority schools and was photographed walking the children into those buildings. For whatever purposes uh, politicians may have had at the time, the legacy of desegregation and the problems of desegregation continue with us. Probably the most fully integrated sections of Virginia are in western Virginia where the populations are small and the counties cannot afford lots of uh, schools and there certainly are no segregation academies in western Virginia. 
I look forward to extending this project a lot further than what you've heard, but this is surely a sample of what we've been doing, and I'd be happy at this point to carry on a conversation with you about this project. Questions?